So the title for this evening's talk is The Practice as a Path of Healing. I'd like to begin by sharing something with you that occurred in um, my now hometown of Seattle. Even sounds American, doesn't it? Seattle, (laughs) Seattle, Washington. Um, I've been reading the papers quite a lot there to try to get up to date with uh, both the American culture and what's going on in my community. I've actually lived outside of America for about the last 15 years, mostly living here in England and in other places around the world, so I'm uh, trying to get back up to date with my culture. So in reading the newspapers, there was an article um, about an initiative that was passed in the uh, last election, Initiative 713, passed in November. And what this initiative was is it it banned steel-jawed leg-hold traps, neck snares, and other body-gripping traps that were used to capture any mammal for recreation or commerce in fur. And it's a really wonderful thing that happened there, that there's a strong grassroots uh, community that was able to get this initiative through. But just about a month or so after that was passed, there was this article in the newspaper titled, That Pesky Mole, It's Protected by I-713. It says, when voters approved the initiative 713 last year, they banned the only traps that worked against a perennial pest, the mole. The Humane Society, which favored the I-713, now wants a mole-trapping amendment. And for me, it was so interesting when I first was reading this, I thought, well, the poor mole. You know, it's like, why the mole? What's wrong with the mole? That, you know, that's the one that has to get the axe you know, where the other creatures can get off free. It's like the poor mole. It says, the mole is a a small, nearly blind creature with no neck, a pink snout, and a penchant for worms. You know, how sad. And it says it's burrowed back into the state's animal trapping debate. The Humane Society of the United States States, which last fall favored the statewide initiative banning body hold animal traps, now favors a law to let people trap moles. And I, when I read this, I was just thinking, it's, it's, I don't know why it came to me, but it seemed so much like what we do to ourselves you know, or other people. You know, everything is okay except that. You know, that has to go. That has to be annihilated. You know. Everything else about myself is okay, but that's not okay. You know, that has to go. Or when we're in relationship to somebody else, they're, they're okay except that, you know, that, that piece, that characteristic has to go. And I just thought, you know, this is this poor thing, you know, especially the description, you know, a small, nearly blind creature with no neck, you know, a pink snout and a penchant for worms, you know, basically... <laughs> It's about the same with ourselves, you know, the things that we want to annihilate in ourselves are, are about as sweet. <laughs> and, 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 and relevant, really, you know, as this mole is. 
So in a way, I think through the talk, I want to explore this um, mole kind of thinking. <laughs> you know, how, again, it's I suppose a bit of continuation from last night, how we have so much difficulty accepting certain parts of ourselves and other people. So through these ideas that we have about what's okay and what's not okay, which we get to see very clearly when we come on a retreat, it's the way that we split off from ourselves. This is the fragmentation that causes so much pain for us in our life. And when we do that, I mean, when we do divide ourselves in this way, it does seem justified. We think this is the way to put ourselves back together again. You know, kind of like a patchwork identity that if I can just find the pieces that fit, that are right, that are correct, that are lovable, whatever, and get rid of the ones that aren't, you know, somehow I can get all the pieces of the puzzle together. I remember very well when I was growing up as an adolescent in my, my culture, in, in the States, I, I had a strong conditioned belief that the only way to find myself, the only way to find my identity, was to basically go through the teenage magazines and to find the identities in the magazines, the hairdo, the clothes, the makeup, the the shoes, uh, you know, read the articles about um, how to be and what to be in the world and somehow make myself, construct myself into the person that I thought I should be. And kind of uh, sort of strange having a different sense of it now, but truly I did think that it was a, a way I had to piece myself together because who I was and how I knew myself was absolutely not okay and wasn't going to be able to, I wasn't going to be able to function in the world from the person that I was. And as I did that, I've certainly, as a teenager, felt tremendous pain, tremendous agitation from not knowing who I was, and there lots of confusion around my identity, and feeling that agitation and tension from the continual fragmentation that I was caught in. As, a, as an adolescent and certainly moved into adulthood as well, as well. I now see that practice, this practice of meditation, really is the practice of healing because it heals this fracture. It heals the way that we split off in ways that we may not even know what we do. And as we heal, as we start to understand, we come back into a place of wholeness, back into a place of completion with ourselves. When we speak of wholeness, it may be hard to even know what that means. What is, what is, it, what, what is really meant by the word, word wholeness? Because it's, sometimes we don't really understand the split. Like that all, that all may seem very confusing or amorphous. You know, what would it mean? I mean, I'm not even, some people may be thinking, I don't even know what's meant by fragmentation because I don't actually feel it, I don't sense that. Yet I do have a sense that I'm not in wholeness. What is that? We don't know what we do 
that brings about this pain, this sorrow, this tension that we feel in ourselves. And yet the practice really is about finding these causes and conditions that bring about this lack of wholeness. It's really investigating into these causes within our own minds that bring about this sense of fragmentation, this lack of wholeness. And then through the understanding, through that, uh, the awareness, the consciousness of this, of this pattern, then we can begin to let go of those causes and conditions that bring about this pain in ourselves and perhaps start to come back into a place of wholeness. This is why I think this is a practice of healing because the healing truly begins when we turn our attention back to ourselves, when we come back to ourselves with an interest to uh, come into a place of wholeness, come into a place of, of happiness, of contentment. And we do this in this practice through the systematic practice of mindfulness, which was introduced to us through one of the discourses, one of the original teachings of the Buddha, which is called the Satipatthana Sutta. The Satipatthana means the foundations of mindfulness. And in that discourse, the Buddha talked about the four foundations of mindfulness, which is the basis of this practice what we do is we turn a compassionate awareness towards four foundations of, of existence. The first one is the body. The second one is the feeling, the feeling life. The third is the mind. The fourth is dharma, called dharma, which are the principles which govern this existence. And so what we do in our practice is we investigate, we look into these four foundations of body, feelings, mind, and dharma. And the Buddha's instruction to us is that we know each one of these distinctly. We know the body as a body. We know the feelings as feelings. We know the mind as the mind. And we know the dharma as the dharma. We really come into a place of understanding those because when we know the difference between the body, the mind, the feelings, the dharma, then self-understanding comes. We really understand what's going on here and and what, what brings about the pain and what brings about the end of the pain. We can start in this this investigation, exploration here this evening, we can start with looking at the first foundation, the foundation of the body. Because as we do that, everything else opens up. I mean, whatever foundation we looked into, all the other foundations would come into, into view because they're all interconnected. If we begin with the body and we apply the factors of mindfulness and investigation to the foundation of the body, we can ask, what is it? What is the body? It seems like such a simple and common question. You know, we live with this thing all the time. What is this? But yet, what is this body? Have we really looked carefully at it to know what this body is? 
when we do look carefully at this body, what we discover <coughs> is this body is made up of sensation. The body is made up of sensation that moves from pleasant sensation, painful sensation, and in be- somewhere in between, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral sensation. And these sensations are changing and shifting constantly. But what happens is that we are deeply conditioned to want our bodies to have pleasant and neutral sensations. We don't want our bodies to have unpleasant sensations. And we, through our strong conditioning, we reject the sensations that are uncomfortable, that are unpleasant, that are painful. And we just keep trying to, to collect, to accumulate, to gather the sensations that we like, that feel good. The body itself really is just this movement of sensation, of bare sensation. But through our likes and dislikes, we pick these sensations up with the mind and we begin to manipulate and control our experience so that we can maintain a certain state of comfort, a certain state of satisfaction. In some ways, this is what's kind of happening with the mole. No, it's like when the mole's not around, it feels one way, but when the mole's around, it feels another way. So we've got to get rid of that. We don't like that feeling. We don't like what happens when the mole is there. This can happen at a very gross level, it can happen at a very subtle level, this manipulation and control that happens for us. I remember one time when I was uh, involved with a a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society on the east coast of America. And well into the retreat, about six weeks uh, or um, seven weeks into a retreat of doing really uh, precise concentration practice, concentration meaning very uh, one-pointed mindful attention, using noting, uh, the practice of noting, was noting every mind moment uh, that it was occurring, seeing, tasting, smelling, thinking, feeling, hearing, breathing, sensation, and noting, noting, noting. This is a, a Burmese style of practice. So the mind, my mind was getting very focused and very concentrated. And I was doing my walking meditation in the basement of the, of the center, very large center. And there were two rugs, big, big, giant rugs on the floor. And I like doing my walking meditation along a line to help me kind of, like the edge of the rug, to help me stay steady. And I remember as I was doing my walking meditation, looking down at the rug, doing my walking meditation, and then thinking, I don't like this rug. This is an ugly rug. That's a nicer rug over there. (laughs) I'm just doing my walking meditation. And I could feel this, I don't want to be walking on this rug. It's really not a, it's not a nice rug. It's such a nice rug over there. I'd be much happier if I was doing my walking meditation on that rug, which was about uh, three feet away from where I was doing my walking meditation. And and because my mind was fairly clear and fairly focused, I could feel and really observe that discomfort arising because there was the bare sensation, first of the, the agitation, the discomfort that was starting to rise. And then what my mind started doing with, sort of what we call mind games, you know, mind games. And I just kept walking with it and noticing how 
strong that need was to get away from that rug <laughs> because it was the cause of my discomfort. And how easy it is to, if I had, didn't have the clarity, to really imagine that it was the rug <laughs> and not my mind. You know, that it was the rug that was the problem. And that by just moving over three feet, everything would be fine. The only thing that would happen if I moved over three feet was that probably the discomfort would go away for a while <laughs> till something else started agitating me. And then I wouldn't have to be feeling the discomfort anymore. But all along, I would think it was still the rug if I wasn't really seeing very clearly. This can happen, I really think this happens so much to us, where there's the bare sensation and then the response, and we don't really know what we're responding to. We're not really in touch with the sensations that are happening in the body, because it so easily moves up into the mind. And if the, and if the discomfort isn't seen very clearly, then the discomfort actually begins to attract an intensification of mind states which then increases the pain. For example, we, I may start complaining, or I may start feeling, st- start feeling self-pity. Oh, why does this always happen to me? You know, or anger, or fear, or grief, or sorrow. And then these mind states begin to intensify and get stronger, and then I feel even more pain and more identified and more caught. And as this increases, what began as just mild discomfort can turn in, the whole body can start to feel very unpleasant, very agitated, and then the body can be seen as the enemy. It can be seen as the source of so much pain that is now not only physical, but is also emotional, and mental, and just the the whole being, the whole being, not just my body, but my body and my whole being just can be seen as the enemy, the source of the pain. And then I'll want to reject it, annihilate it, in all different forms, the mole. But where is the problem? Is it in the body? Is it in the feelings? Or is it in the mind? this is really what the Buddha is asking us to investigate through the four foundations of mindfulness. Because when we know the difference between them, when we know the body is the body, the feelings is the feelings, the mind is the mind, the Dharma is the Dharma, we can find out where the problem is. And that's what Buddhist teaching is about. It's about finding where the problem is so that we can release the problem, we can come out of the problem of life and come into a place of being free, free of the problem. I want to share a discourse with you from one of the original texts of the Buddha that I, I shared last year as well, for those of you who've come back, but I think it's, it's, so, it's so, such a pithy teaching about this, knowing, uh, finding where the problem is, but I want to share it again. I think it's, uh, these are the kind of uh, 
discourses that are uh, repeated again and again and again like, like uh, sacred songs or chants so that we can take them in deeply. So the Buddha asked the monks a question. He said, The unlearned, unenlightened being, O monks, experiences pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neutral feelings. The learned, noble disciple also experiences pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neutral feelings. In this case, monks, what is the distinction, the contrast between the learned, noble disciple and the unlearned, unenlightened being? So he's really asking, in a way, what's the difference between the enlightened being and the unenlightened being? Because they have both experienced the same sensations in the body, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. What's the difference? And it's this question that we ask ourselves. What is the difference you know, between being an enlightened being and an unenlightened being? What actually changes? What's transformed? And so the Buddha addresses this. He says, when an unlearned, unenlightened being encounters unpleasant feelings, he grieves, laments, wails, beats his chest, and is distraught and distracted therein. He experiences two kinds of feeling, namely in the body and in the mind. It is, it is as if an archer, having fired one arrow into a certain man, were then to fire a second arrow. That man would experience pain from both arrows, such as the unlearned, unenlightened being. He experiences two kinds of pain, bodily and mental. As for the learned, noble disciple monks, experiencing unpleasant feeling, he neither grieves, laments, wails, nor beats his chest. He is not distressed. He experiences pain only in the body, not in the mind. Just as if an archer, having shot one arrow into a certain man, were then to shoot a second arrow, but missed the mark, in this case, that man would experience pain only on account of the first arrow. Such is the learned noble disciple. He experiences pain in the body, but not in the mind. So this is really what we need to examine, because this is what we get caught in. We have the bare experience, the bare sensation, that comes into the body through the sight, the sound, taste, touch, smell, feel. And then we heap layers upon layers and layers of mental concept on top of that, which yet generally can lead to all kinds of grief and sorrow for us. And as the mind gets fixated in this, the body responds, if the mind gets fixated, particularly in negativity, it can be greed too, greed or ill will, negativity, anger, the body responds with more contraction, more rigidity, and then the mind can get more reactive, and in this way it continues to accumulate. And this is really the dis-ease or the disease, the dis-ease of the mind. The discourse goes on, which is brings out an interest, the Buddha brings out an interesting point. He says about the unenlightened being, displeased over that unpleasant feeling, tendencies to aversion and resistance are accumulated. Confronted with unpleasant feeling, he seeks delight in sense pleasures. Why so? 
because the unlearned, unenlightened being knows of no other way out of the unpleasant feeling than to seek the distraction of sense pleasures. Then the tendency to lust is accumulated, not knowing feelings as they really are. The tendency to delusion is accumulated. He is, I say, bound by suffering. Bound by suffering. Such an interesting point when the Buddha says the unlearned being knows of no other way out of the unpleasant feeling than to seek the distraction of of sense pleasure. And the example that I used about my rug exactly was that. You know, over there, it's much better. It's much more pleasing. It's much more desirable. That will bring my relief. Seeking, I knew... No, no other way out but to seek the distraction of sense pleasure. Understanding how we add on, how we accumulate on top of our experience is essential to coming to a place of wholeness. As we bring mindfulness to these four foundations of mindfulness, we notice how we notice our accumulated responses the bare feelings that are happening particularly the unpleasant sensations we can notice uh, the rising of our thoughts that that uh, grow into stories into pictures into images we can notice the associated emotions that are rising with those stories the anger that comes, I don't like it, or the sorrow, I want it to go away and it won't go away, the pity, why does this always happen to me, fear, what if it doesn't go away? And just how these grow within our minds and as all this grows and builds, this is what is called the contraction of self. This is the the, the self-constriction or the self-contraction that causes, seems to cause us so much trouble. This is what gives the notion of self, is this, this bondage that we find ourselves in, of the I, the me, and the mine. I wanted to read you this quote from uh, uh, Wei Wu Wei, who said, Why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you think and everything you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. Just a little reminder. (laughs) When we shift our attitude to one of healing, we begin to understand that the rejection of the pain or the discomfort is just another way of solidifying our sense of self which leads to more pain, which leads to more bondage. Then what are we to do if we have this realization, if we know that, it, that if we keep rejecting this, it's just leading to more pain? Because we see that rejecting myself, rejecting yourself, does not necessarily doesn't get rid of the self. 
but just seems to create a more solid sense of ourselves. And yet perhaps there may be a moment or two that when you let go of your resistance, when you let go and you come into meeting your experience, you may see that what's left in the absence of the resistance is just what there is. It's not that there's nothing. It's not that when we let go of our resistance, we let go of our tension, we let go of our negativity, that there's nothing. There is something, (laughs) but it's just what it is. It's the bare experience without all the accumulation, without all the overlay. It may just be... um, a tingling or a burning or a or a, a pleasant sight or a sound or a taste a touch a thought a momentary thought or a mood it's just what it is and then we there's the possibility of perhaps seeing it clearly which really is what vipassana is to see things clearly as we begin to remove all the overlays, the piles that we bring on top of our experience to see just what's there in the simplicity, in the bare simplicity. And when we're with just what's there, it can be like being left in a room with somebody that you'd rather not be with who may be going through a difficult time. And then what do you do? You know, well, we make the best of it, you know? Maybe open to it, get familiar with this person, you know? Not make it more difficult for ourselves. Our dear uh, Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh had a lovely way of talking about this. He, re- he invited us to actually come into dialogue with the situation. He said, you could say, dear physical formation, I know you are there. Stay with me for a little while. Are you really suffering? I know you're there. It's okay. To really come into a communion with this physical formation. He's encouraging us to practice the mind of caring and making friends with our bodies, making friends with ourselves which is not something we haven't heard before. A nun from the 11th century wrote, Birth, sickness, old age, and death are just everyday things. Why do we always pray to be liberated from them? If we spend our whole time trying to get away from birth, birth, sickness, old age, and death, we will just be more caught by them will just be more caught by them. When we push our experience away, we're encouraging more of an attitude of struggle. But we don't often see that we're doing that. We just want to be out of the struggle. And so we find, we, we find ourselves struggling to be out of the struggle, you know, caught in this, in this treadmill of, of, of struggle. When we push away, we encourage the separation of me and it, or me and the enemy. And this is the fragmentation. This is when we're caught in the dualistic view, the view of me and other, 
me and it. But when we practice the way of caring, we're bringing the struggle to an end. And that duality collapses into wholeness. And from here, each moment, it's not like we have to do that once and then it's done forever. It's every moment that we come into our experience and we meet that with care. That duality collapses and we are coming into the attitude of healing. We are nourishing, we are putting salve on the healing process. Perhaps you've noticed how much in a hurry you are at times to get rid of the discomfort. You to push that, you know, I, I see it in myself if there's a uh, knot in my knee or my back or um, being in a room I don't want to be in, just ha- that urge, that tendency to want to go away. But can we, as we slow down and become more attentive, can we watch these urges? Can we watch these impulses? And perhaps just invite it in. Allow it to stay for a while, to have a cup of tea together. I want to read this email. Again, I've read this a few times too, but again, I think it's so um, poignant to this situation here. A friend of mine uh, sent me this email about a trip that he had taken. I wonder if Donna told you about our Denver escapade when the fuel pump on the Taurus gave out as we were starting west on the I-90. The person who came to tow us to a service station offered to let us camp in his garden. Ever keen to meet people and to accept offers of generosity, I said that that would be perfect. Accordingly, we arrived at his house. He had confirmed with his wife that she was okay with his offer. To find a home of the most amazing apparent chaos, Everywhere, the roads on two sides filled with campers, tow trucks, other vehicles in various states of disrepair, the two garages filled with all kinds of mechanical bits and pieces, the veranda half used as an overflow for household items, the kitchen with all counters 18 inches deep in utensils and myriad other objects, the bathroom which seemed to be no one's obligation to clean, and so on and so on. My overriding feeling about where we found ourselves how utterly incredible that anybody, anyone, could be so unselfconscious as to invite strangers back to such a home which social conditioning would generally deem a, an incredible mess. This surely is generosity in the extreme. <laughs> but isn't it like that for us in a way? You know, it's like we don't really want to invite people in when we're in, t- in a total mess, in, in, in total chaos. But what about the possibility? You know, not only inviting others in and saying, yeah, I'm a total mess today, but you can, you know, I'd love to be with you if you can stand me. But can we do that to ourselves? You know, it's like, I can barely stand to be with myself today, but let's see if there's a way I can make this agreeable. You know, come on, let's just sit down together. You know, let's have a cup of tea together. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. Even in the chaos. Even in the mess. Because you see, as we open in this way, as we open ourselves in this way, it's a freeing up of the constricted energy. It's a freeing up of this solid, constricted sense of ourselves. 
and we feel more free. That's why we feel lighter. That's why we feel easier when we can even have a sense of humor about things, have a sense of humor about what a mess we are, how much chaos we are in. We might say that the practice is really one of neutralizing negativity. I like that very much. We're neutralizing the negativity in the mind. This is healing. This is what healing is. When we soften our resistance, our contraction, we dissolve this dualistic view, then we can truly find what the real disease is, which is only in the mind. It's only in our mind. And when we're not reactive, we feel more spacious. It's, it's, it's what is there in the absence of the reactivity. It's what's there in the absence of the resistance. And when we start to view ourselves and things from this point of view, things start to change. When we look at the experience of pain, the physical pain from this point of view, we may not even be able to call it pain any longer. That word, that concept may be too gross, may be too uh, strong, not accurate. Because what we felt as so solid, this ball of pain in the past, actually begins to dissolve back into just changing sensation, which is what the body is. We may just experience itching, burning, throbbing, cold, heat, lightness, density, just the elemental nature of the moment-to-moment changing experience. This is Vipassana. See things as they are. I had quite an amazing experience once, and sometimes experiences that we have uh, inform us for a long time to come. And it was about 10 years ago when I was in India and I've spent many winters in India and many, many informing experiences, uh, informing experiences have happened for me there. And I would say that most of them not very pleasant either. Um, this particular experience uh, happened uh, while I had been spending time with who I, someone who I consider my guru, um, Punjaji, H.W.L. Punjaji, who I had the good, for- good fortune of spending some time with. And I was having some very powerful openings while I was with him. And the second year I was there, I um, was staying on my own in a room, and I fell ill, as I often do when I'm in India. And I got very sick. And I had um, some kind of intestinal thing accompanied with very, very high fevers. And I was uh, needing, I was alone in the room. And it went on for uh, a couple of days and all through the night where I would be lying there with the uh, high, high fevers, almost hallucinatory, and very, very um, bad diarrhea and cold chills and I really did think that I was dying. And I um, did have some friends who would come in and check on me occasionally, but through the night I was pretty much on my own. Well, I was on my own. And there was no heat, and I would sweat and soak through the sheets, and the whole bed would get wet. 
and then I'd have to get up in my my um, delusory state and have to change the sheets and find something else to put on and it was really one of the most um, very difficult situations that I've ever been in but the reason I want to mention it is because my mind was completely clear and full of light and even though my body was going through one of the most difficult states I'd had ever experienced and the conditions could not have been worse, being in India and being alone and uh, being so sick to the point where I was almost dying. I was absolutely fascinated by the possibility that my mind was untouched. And during that was just during this time. I'm not saying that that's what happened. <laughs> that's happened a num- number of times afterwards. Of course, I've never been that ill and, not th- and never been that sick. And also hadn't necessarily been with my teacher. But it was remarkable, the possibility for the, the light that was flowing through my whole being, my whole body, my, whole, my, my mind, that was not bothered by the conditions that I was experiencing. No fear, no sorrow, no um, suffering. Just as the um, sutra that I read was talking about, only one arrow, the arrow of the painful feelings that were moving through my body but not through the mind and because of that experience and as I say I haven't had an experience like that again so I haven't been that was the most extreme situation I've ever experienced but it has been incredibly informing in terms of the possibility of this teaching that we can be in the most formidable conditions and situations and there's a possibility of not being touched not being bothered by it and I know that and so um, I I, I trust that that's informed me at some very very deep level that in some way hasn't even come to fruition yet and so when we can be in that state when we're not reacting we're not identified, we're not caught up with the chaos of our situation, the difficulty of our situation, the whole experience can change. There was one woman who, when I was speaking about this once, she said, yeah, she said, you know, when I really looked at what was happening in my leg, she said, it wasn't pain anymore. She said, I just saw pink polka dots, you know? Mm-hmm. It's all there, just pink polka dots. Mm-hmm. You know, anything can happen as this seemingly solid body that we carry around with us starts to shift, starts to change, starts to transform. But the tragedy of this human condition is that we're in a constant search for a state that is more fulfilling than the one that we're in because we think this isn't enough. And we think that by annihilating the present situation to find one more gratifying, that we're going to come into some state of happiness. But yet what we don't see is that it keeps us in a perpetual state of stress, a perpetual state of anxiety. But we don't really know what we're doing, which is why these teachings are so vital these teachings are so important because there may be the possibility that in one moment we'll see it. And when we see it, 
that seeing is what's called insight and that insight can have the power to cut through the power to break through the pattern the lifelong conditioned pattern so the next time that you find yourself in a reactive mode to something that's occurring in a situation you might want to just ask yourself the question pose the question what is so painful about the situation that I'll do anything not to feel it that I'll do anything not to be here whether it's while you're doing your walking meditation or whether you're you're sitting with um, some difficult mind state or whether you're up in your room whatever it is when you find yourself in that reactive state ask the question what is so painful I mean, one time I was going through a very diff- uh, in a retreat, going through a lot of uh, prolonged kind of bad mood. You know, I just get into a bad mood, and it just sort of everything seems painted, gloomy. And so I just asked that question: What is it? What seems so gloomy? What seems so painful about the situation? And turn the attention into my body. And as I was with myself, I actually found a kind of um a point in my side that was really niggling, really bugging me. And I saw that it actually was a feeling in my body that I didn't want to be with. And so there was this pulling away that was creating this difficult mood for myself. And so I came into that particular sensation and stayed with it and saw how I didn't really want to be with it, I didn't want to feel it, and stayed with it. And just by doing that, there was a whole vitality that opened up for me, a whole energy that got released in that for me, and it seemed to break through the mood. So we need to find out, find out what's, what's happening that's creating this tension, that's creating this agitation. Look into it, invite the inquiry, invite the investigation. We can even invite the pain to sit down with us and look on with kindness and friendliness. See what's happening. And when we do this, the psychological knots begin to release and we find that we have so much energy that's freed up in doing that. And in this way, we encourage our healing. We encourage coming to a place of wholeness a place of completion. We'll end with this poem from 12th century Chinese Zen master Wu Men. Ten thousand flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.